Support for Longform this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allow us to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. We are actually on our annual two-week break for the holidays, so no new show this week. But we're bringing you one of our favorites of the year, uh, in case you missed it. It's a conversation I had with Connie Walker back in early 2021. Connie was the reporter and host of a show called Missing and Murdered, a podcast from the CBC about the mysterious deaths of Indigenous women in Canada including an incredible season two, which is called Finding Cleo. And then she moved to Gimlet Media, where she reported and hosted a show this year called Stolen, The Search for Jermaine. That whole show wasn't completed when we spoke, and now it is. I encourage you to go listen to it, and I really appreciated this conversation that she and I had and wanted to play it for you again. Longform is produced in partnership with Vox, And here's my conversation with Connie Walker from February 2021. Connie, welcome to the Longform Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I've wanted to have you on for a while, and I'm a big fan of the shows that you've done, and I didn't actually know that your new show was coming out, so this wasn't timed to, I was, it wasn't like I did Intel, I shouldn't reveal this actually, but uh, it's great timing that uh, your show is coming out right now, and I've been fortunate to get to listen to a couple of episodes, so we can talk about that. Um, at the beginning of the new show, you say something like, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here, so much of my work has been about women who I can never meet, whose lives have been stolen, who've been cut short. And I'm very interested in sort of how that became your work. Uh, Mm. And you actually refer to this original murder that you learned about when you were younger. So I want to talk a little bit about the circumstances around that. And first, sort of where did you grow up and and where were you at the time that you, you first learned about that? Sure, yeah. I grew up on my reserve in southern Saskatchewan, so a very kind of rural area. I come from a really small community called uh, the Okanese First Nation. So all my family still lives there. I'm the only person who is not like within an hour, basically, of home. Oh, wow. And growing up, you know, as a Cree 
person in Saskatchewan, you know, there's a lot of tension that exists between Indigenous people and settlers, even still 500 years later. And when I was growing up, I, you know, that was just normal for me. That was just the only thing that I knew. So I feel like a lot of this exploration for me actually has happened after I left. It took a lot of time to reflect on that. But I was in high school when I first heard about Pamela George, and she was a young Indigenous woman who was killed in Regina, Saskatchewan, which is the big city about an hour away from both of our reserves, actually. You know, she was from a reserve not far from mine. And she was a, a young mother of two kids, and she was killed. And I remember when the two men who were on trial for her murder, when that was happening, it kind of just dominated the news in, in Saskatchewan, for sure, but also in Canada. And I wasn't even a kid who particularly paid much attention to the news, but it was this huge thing that was really hard to ignore, especially because of the way she was talked about and the way they were talked about. You know, mm -hmm. the two men who were on trial for her murder were young white university students. You know, I remember reading about their middle-class backgrounds. I think one of their dads worked at the university. And the only thing I remember about Pamela from the news was that they called her a prostitute. And I can't really think back to like how that made me feel when I was in high school, except that obviously when they were acquitted in her murder and convicted instead of, of manslaughter, there was a huge uproar in the Native community. And it was really, you know, just one instance of a long line of instances of this kind of racial injustice permeating the lives of Indigenous people in Saskatchewan. And I remember that was the first time I actually felt compelled to write something for the school newsletter. Hmm. I don't remember what I wrote, and thankfully there's no copies exist anywhere <laughs> as far as I know. Um, but it was also, I think, the first time I thought seriously about being a journalist and about, you know, who were the people telling these kinds of stories. But when I started university a couple of years later, I didn't start journalism. I actually didn't even apply to the journalism school because I really felt like that wasn't a space for me. I really felt like, oh, that I would never get into that. That's not something because there were no native journalists that I remember as a mm. kid or in general in media. It just didn't feel like it was something I could actually do. So what did you do instead? What, what did you start out in? I was doing an arts degree and a uh, major in psychology. I was really interested in psychology. And I feel like for me, that was also, I think, my interest came from like wanting to learn about myself, I think, in a lot of ways and learn about, you know, how my experiences, you know, as a kid have were impacting me. And, and I think that looking back, I feel like, you know, those two things are still things that I'm interested in. You know, I spent so much of my time right now digging into other Indigenous people's lives, but I always see so many parallels with my own experiences. And I feel like that's part of what motivates me, I think, in doing the work that I do. But eventually in university, I got into this communications program that was called Indian Communication Arts. And the woman who ran the program was just so welcoming. And she was like, you should come and do this. And, you know, just so supportive and, and really kind of helped give me the confidence to think, hey, I could I could do this or I could belong here. And and I really got really lucky. Like, you know, I, I got an internship at CBC and then my internship was, you know, being a chase producer, which is basically trying to chase down guests to come on the program to talk about whatever it was that we were talking about that day. Mm -hmm. I was terrible at it and I didn't like it at all. <laughs> um, but <laughs> but I, I think so much of figuring things out is learning what you don't like as well. 
And I remember I was in Halifax. I'm from Saskatchewan, so in the prairie, so I was in Halifax. And, you know, I don't think doing particularly well in this internship necessarily, but I was having, I, I smoked back then, I, I smoked cigarettes. So I was smoking outside in the parking lot on my lunch break one day. And this woman came up to me and she said, I've seen you around the building. Like, what are you doing here? And I kind of told her what I was up to. And she was a producer for a youth show that the CBC did called Street Sense, which is a youth consumer show. And she said, we're looking for a new host. Like, do you want to audition? And I was like, sure, yeah, I'll audition. <laughs> <laughs> this is a real advertisement for smoking. Uh... <laughs> I know, it was really, I was like sitting on one of those, like in a parking lot, sitting on one of those cinder blocks in front of the cars and having a cigarette. I'm sure I look like a great role model for kids. <laughs> um, and then I, got, I ended up getting that job and I stayed with the CBC for 20 years doing other jobs after that. And when you started, did you arrive thinking, okay, I want to tell certain types of stories that are not being told here. And were you, at what point did you start getting the ability to do that? It was years, like a long, long, long time. Actually, you know, absolutely. Like, I, I think that I was always interested in telling stories from our communities and talking about things that we weren't seeing in media about what it meant to be Cree or what it meant to be First Nations or Inuit or Métis in Canada. But in that internship where I was working in that newsroom in Halifax, it was the summer that there was a, a dispute that was happening on the East Coast between the native fishermen and the non-native fishermen, and it had erupted in violence and it was making national headlines. It, you know, it was, again, like, a you know, just the latest on a long list of, like, conflicts between Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people in Canada. And I'm from Saskatchewan, so I didn't know very much about the fisheries dispute, but I was Indigenous. And so I was assigned to Chase Produce. And I, I remember I had booked the chief of a local First Nation to come on the show to talk about whatever the latest development was in this dispute. I remember it was a Friday and I'd booked him to come on on Monday morning. And it was a morning show. So, you know, we started at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. It's a TV show or radio? It was a TV show, TV show. yeah. Most of my career was actually in television just for the last few years in audio. But I had booked him to come on the morning show on a Monday morning. And the senior producer, who was my supervisor at the time, was like asking me, like, you told him what time it was. He knows where to go. He's going to a Dropbox. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. He knows. He knows. And she said, because you know those Indians, they'll go out drinking all weekend and they won't show up on a Monday morning. <gasps> and I remember like just feeling exactly that, just shock. And But my first instinct was like, look around. Like, did anybody else see that? Like, can anybody back me up? Like, And it was a busy newsroom. No one's paying attention to anything that we were saying or doing. And I, I don't think I said anything, and I don't think I felt like I could say anything. I was an intern. You know, she was a senior producer in the newsroom. Um, but I felt like that really set the tone <laughs> for, you know, the kinds of spaces that I would be working in for the rest of my career, really. I mean, you know, there were lots of uh, incredible people <laughs> who were not racist who I also learned a lot from over the years. But I had, you know, that wasn't the only experience I had. I mean, the first, um, a couple of years later, like after I finished the youth show, I was working in another national newsroom, but in Toronto, which is in Ontario, which is where I am now. And it was a national current affairs show. And it was before social media, and I remember getting an email. People used to forward emails and say, please forward to all of your contacts. And it was an email that a girl 
that I knew from back home had gone missing. And I actually, I knew her because she was the same age as my sister. And when I was in university, I coached my sister's volleyball team. Mm. And one of the girls on our team one year was named Amber Redman. So this email was from Amber's family saying that she was missing and could we please, you know, forward this email. And it was the same summer that in Toronto, another young woman had gone missing and her name was Alicia Ross. And, you know, I just remember that there were so many, you know, similarities between them. There were both these young women, I think like 19 years old, these beautiful young women whose families were just desperate for, you know, some information about where they were. But Alicia Ross's story, because it was in Toronto, she was or just outside of Toronto, she was from Markham, Ontario, and she was blonde and, you know, beautiful. Her story was on the national newspapers, like the front page, and she got national mm-hmm. news coverage even on TV. And Amber barely got any local coverage in Saskatchewan. And I remember going to my boss at the time to pitch a story about these two cases and the different ways they're covered in the media. Because one of our mandates was to, in this current affairs show, was to examine media. And so I went in to pitch and... I started telling her about Amber and Alicia, and she held up her hand and said, this isn't another poor Indian story, is it? And again, so you're, you're like, this is the attitude, you know? And that was the attitude for a really long time. There just wasn't any interest in hearing these stories. There was a feeling that Canadians didn't care about them or they weren't important. And it was, you know, 10 years after that experience, like, was the first time I really got to start telling stories of Indigenous women and girls who were missing or who had been murdered. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something. Like very quickly, the voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of long form get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. But Noom isn't a diet. It's a weight management program that uses psychology and biology to help you develop healthy, sustainable habits. Noom believes that weight loss starts with the brain, and their daily lessons are tailored to help users understand the science behind food cravings and eating choices. Whether you want to lose weight, increase physical activity, meet a health goal, or simply change the way you think about food, Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. 
Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. What do you feel like changed over those 15 years? Was it a recognition of the audience on the part of the people who were running the newsroom or was there something else going, changing dynamics in the newsroom? Like what, what allowed that for you to finally be able to push through with those stories? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that really what happened was, you know, the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Canada, which was this commission that was established as a part of the Indian Residential School Settlement so in Canada, I think similar in the United States, you know, for I think it was, you know, over 100 years, the federal government ran these boarding schools, these residential schools. And the goal at the beginning was assimilation, you know, that if we take Indigenous children away from their families and communities as children, then they will become like us and they won't be Indigenous anymore. And that went on for generations. And so Indigenous kids who were like four, five years old, sometimes six, seven, were taken away from their families and communities and put in these residential schools. And it's been described as cultural genocide, or, or that's what the commissioners of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission called it. But what it was, was, you know, not just stripping people's culture away from them. You know, so many children who went to residential schools experienced really horrific physical and sexual abuse. And and it really has caused just incredible damage to families and communities. And it was around, I think, in the 1990s, you know, there started being a lawsuits from former students about the abuse they experienced. Um, and people started winning, you know, really large settlements mm -hmm. against the federal government because they had a hand in running the schools along with uh, churches and eventually, the federal government came together and offered a settlement for residential school survivors. And so if you were a survivor of a residential school, this must have been when I was in university. I remember when the settlement happened, like both my grandparents who were residential school survivors, who I was very close to, like my mom was 17 when I was born, like 10 days past her 17th birthday, she was very young. So I lived, we lived with my grandparents and I, I was very close with them, but I was in university when I found out my grandpa was a residential school survivor because I had, I was taking this oral history class and it was like, one of the assignments was to record someone's oral history. And so I went home that weekend and I interviewed my grandfather and that's when he told me that he went to a residential school when he was six years old. And he didn't say much about his experience, but he told me one story about how he was really close to his grandfather and he spent a lot of time with his grandfather and that when he was in residential school, his grandfather died and he wasn't allowed to go home for the funeral. And he said, he told me he remembered like sitting underneath a fire escape and crying. Oh. I know, it's such a heartbreaking thing. It makes, yes. Um, it's like prison. I mean, even they let prisoners out to attend funerals at times. Yeah, like lots of people's stories about, like have stories about never being allowed to go home, like, you know, being taken as a child. I remember being at one of the Truth and Reconciliation School events and hearing from a survivor that she was taken to a residential school as a child and then taken home like after years. And she said she didn't recognize her own family, like she didn't know who her family was. 
you know, and my and my grandmother, who was also a residential school survivor, she went to a residential school in Manitoba. So like they often made them far from home so that it was hard for kids to get back home because they would run away and they would try to get home. But my grandma ran away from residential school in Manitoba and made it back home and she never went back. And she said none of her kids would ever go to residential schools. So my mom never went, but my dad went. He was from another community. But the legacies of what happened to kids in residential schools is is still affecting families and, and communities today. And all of the stories that I was reporting on as a reporter, you know, if it was about the violence against Indigenous women or the overrepresentation of kids in care or the incarceration rates in Indigenous communities, like those stories are all connected back to this history. And it's really hard when you're a news reporter to kind of get at that. But you, you asked kind of what changed. But it was it was the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So as part of this residential school settlement, survivors received $10,000 plus, I think it was, I can't remember how many more thousands based on how many years you attended. But if you experienced severe physical or sexual abuse, you could go through this process called the independent assessment process and get more money. But as part of the settlement, they also created this Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was designed to travel across the country and hear the stories of residential school survivors. And the the work of the TRC, I think, really pushed those stories into the forefront. And, you know, for the first time after decades and decades, you know, I feel like media and just Canadians in general had to kind of reckon with this history that we didn't know. We were never taught. We just ignored it for so long. And the work of the TRC was happening. And then CBC decided to do a four-part documentary series kind of focused on reconciliation, this idea that, you know, we have to move forward in this relationship between Indigenous people and white people, that we've lived alongside one another for 500 years, and what was the way forward. But it was the first time that these stories were being told supposedly told from like an Indigenous perspective. So this was like four documentaries focused on in the Indigenous experience. And I was asked to become a producer on, on one of the documentaries. Each show or each hour had one Indigenous producer. And it was the first time like in my career that there was that much time and energy and resources given to hearing from us. And I remember the night that it aired the first time, you know, hearing people with accents, like native accents on TV was just like, I still get goosebumps thinking wow. about it. And I, and I remember thinking like, oh, I wish my grandparents could see this. I wish they could have seen it. And it was from that series, which was called Eighth Fire. We did a lot of digital programming. And what we realized was that there was a huge audience that was online that wanted to hear these stories. And so I pitched following that the creation of something called CBC Aboriginal, which was kind of just a, a hub for all Aboriginal news. We said at the time it was called Aboriginal. Now it's called CBC Indigenous. And that was the first time we had metrics that we were like, oh, actually, people are interested in these stories. People want to hear. You know, we were a tiny team. I was the reporter and I had a senior producer. And we were able to use some other Indigenous reporters across the network for one day a month. But our page numbers were beating whole regions sometimes, like small regions, but regions. And and that really snowballed. And where in there, as I was reading back in some of that that work, where in there did you realize or did you realize from the beginning that there was like a whole segment of stories just about women who were missing or had been murdered, had been taken as children and never, no one ever knew their fate? When did you realize that that was in and of itself just an entire topic for investigation? 
Yeah, I mean, I I remember when I was working on on that the Current Affairs show that one of my co-producers at the time was Indigenous, and she had done a story about a woman who had been killed, and she was involved in like helping to raise awareness about MMIWG or missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And I remember at the time in her story, she talked to the Native Women's Association of Canada, which is this organization that advocates on behalf of Indigenous women. And at the time, they had said something like that they knew of 500 cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. And I remember people kind of scoffing at that number and being like, it can't be that high or like that's, you know. And then when we started CBC Aboriginal, you know, what was what was happening is that it was really families and communities and, and people doing grassroots work who were kind of pushing these stories and saying, this is something that we need to be paying attention to. This is something we need to be looking at. And so we started doing a little bit of that reporting, but it was really after the RCMP, which is the kind of National Police Force, Royal Canadian Mounted Police in Canada, released a report saying that they had created this database where they found 1,182 cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls from a certain time period. Like it was sometime in the 80s, maybe up until 2012. And it was only in their jurisdiction. So it didn't include any urban cases or any, it was only where the RCMP was. But it was like, finally, there was like a number or something that news organizations could kind of pinpoint. And in that report, they said that they had... 230 unsolved cases or around 230 unsolved cases. And so some people that I was working with at CBC, we we thought, you know, we should come up with our own database because they didn't have any identifying information or any of the women's stories in this report. And the goal from the start was to try to go beyond the statistic and the number and try to really, it sounds ridiculous to say, but like show the, the human beings behind these stories. Because, you know, the thing about Pamela George is that, you know, when you label someone as a, a prostitute in a headline, it's this dehumanizing thing that that gives people permission to not care or to feel like somehow they were at fault for you know the violence that other people inflicted on them. And so it was really important for us to try to get beyond that and not focus on the violence that you know the profiles that that the researchers wrote include anecdotes, you know, people's favorite memories or some other detail that tried to show that every single one has a family and a community. And that was the beginning, I would say, of this work. Like for that project, I did kind of a more in-depth story on one of those cases. And I think it was like a 15-minute like TV documentary we did and an online story. And it was the case of this 15-year-old girl named Leah Anderson who had been murdered in her community in northern Manitoba. And her community was called God's Lake Narrows, and it's accessible by plane only. Mm. Uh, it's a flying community, except for a couple of months in the winter where they can build an ice road. But when Leah was killed, it was accessible only by plane. And so when the RCMP landed to investigate her murder, like the killer would have still been in the community. But her case is still unsolved. So my producer Marnie and I traveled up to God's Lake Narrows, and we spent, I think it was about a week up there um, and very much focused on like, you know, the mystery aspect of this unsolved case and, you know, when was she last seen and and where was she going and, you know, what were the things that people were saying in the community about what might have happened to her. 
but getting to be there for a week or, or whatever it was, you know, we, we also got to see all of these other things about Leah's life, you know, that she and her siblings were in child welfare. There was this housing crisis in the community, that, you know, the incredible poverty that exists there. People didn't have access to like clean drinking water a lot of the times or, or proper sewage. Mm-hmm. This, this community had been ravaged by the effects of residential schools. Like a lot of the people who lived there were residential school survivors. There were, were you know, a lot of people struggling with addictions. And so we came back and we were cutting together this story and you know, we had, I think, 15 minutes, which is a long time in television, like, especially now. Um, (laughs) But I remember feeling like so much of what was important about Leah's story, we couldn't include, like, you know, we had to leave it on the cutting room floor or or whatever. And, and it was kind of the first time that I I thought this should be, this could be a podcast. Like, I remember Marnie and I, you know, what year, what year was this? Oh, gosh, Leah, that would have been 2000. It was after Serial. Like, I had listened to Serial, and I was like, this could be a, a podcast. Um, but it was a long time then before we actually did the podcast. Or not not a long time, but but we did a few other stories, you know, after Leah's story. Marnie and I, and Marnie was my producer for all of my reporting on missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls in at the CBC. And she's not, she's not Indigenous, um, and we also had the same editor or senior producer for all of our stories. And I feel like, you know, we really kind of built, you know, this really incredible relationship just amongst each other and the trust that we had in working on these stories, but also building blocks that we were like deepening our own understanding of what was important for us to report on and what we should be doing. But we did a couple other stories. We did a story about uh, a woman named Amber Tuckero who went missing and Patricia Carpenter. And I remember like hearing from an editor around that time, like, how many more can you really do? Like now you've done a few, like what else, what else is there kind of thing? And it just showed me that like there was still this idea that just a lack of understanding. I'm like, this is just the beginning. Like this is the way in. Like now we have an issue, an indigenous issue that people are caring about and paying attention to. Like this is the way in to tell all of the other stories, like the whole other side of our history (laughs) that we just have not learned or haven't been taught. And it was the Alberta Williams podcast, which was also supposed to be a two-minute news story that oh, we ended wow. up turning into nine episodes, I think it was. Yeah. So you did two of the Missing and Murdered podcast series for CBC. So the first one is Alberta Williams, the first season, and then the second one is Finding Cleo, the Cleo Semeganis season. And I was so fascinated by the way that you work in those shows. And it's interesting you mentioned Serial because I think Serial kind of open this door both towards serialized podcasting, but also a sort of self-reflective type of reporting. But I feel like yours is even different and kind of pioneering in a different way, which is that I don't think I'd ever heard the internal thoughts of the reporter, not just did this person do it or what should I, who should I call? But there's a moment in, for instance, I think it's in Finding Cleo where you talk about just whether you should include someone in the show at all. You're like concerned about their mental health they're agreeing to be in it. Maybe it was a sibling uh, mm-hmm. of hers. Yeah. And I'm curious if that that approach came naturally to you when you started it, or is that something that you you felt out as you went along? I think that's one of the things I really like about podcasting. I mean, most of my career was in news and as a TV news reporter. So like on the local news at first, but then on the national news, and like it's very much 
you know, felt like you're kind of putting on a persona, Connie Walker, CBC News, Toronto, you know, it's very, very (laughs) different in tone. Um, And when I started doing the podcast, I love that I felt like I got to be a whole human being and I got to include myself and my experience in it. Because the work that I'm doing and the reason that I care about or I'm so passionate about doing this work is because I do have personal connections to a lot of these issues and a lot of these stories. And I like being able to include my own reflections in that and some of my own personal story, like, you know, in season one of Missing and Murdered, you know, when we were talking about residential schools, you know, I, I talked about my dad being a residential school survivor. And I talked about that I didn't know much about his experience, but I know that he was impacted by it because of the violence that he brought home in our family. And, you know, it was important for me to also talk about how he had his own healing journey and like the resilience that exists along with the trauma, I think is really important to acknowledge that he eventually, you know, kind of reconnected with his culture and spirituality and became a leader in his community and and like a really great father. Um, And I feel so much regret that I didn't get to spend more time with him or or know that side of him, you know, before he passed away eight years ago. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that does come naturally to me. And that really is what motivates my work is, isn't just, you know, a job or in the same way that, that I've done other jobs, like interning at, at the local <laughs> newsroom or whatever. This really feels like when it started happening, I was like, oh, they're letting me do it now. And so I have to do it. And like, who knows that window could close tomorrow. And and so we just need to keep making the case that no, 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 this is still really important. There's still an audience. And, and I don't think we ever expected there to be, I, I, I certainly never expected there to be an opportunity to focus on it full time, but that's what it's turned into. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. (laughs) I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. Because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. I feel like there's so many kind of traps and tropes around, you know, what you'd loosely call like true crime or stories about murder that you can fall into. And one of them you kind of have already 
touched on, which is sort of making the victim just this sort of shadowy object and their lives and their family is not important. But the other one, which you you actually actively talk about in the shows a good bit, I feel like, is re-traumatizing the victims or family members of the victims. And what's your calculus in the news value versus the risk of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like my journey in the last four or five years obviously has been around how to tell these stories in podcasts and, and feeling like this is the perfect medium to do that because you can weave in that bigger story that's so important to understanding um, and you have the space to do it. But it really has been learning about what it is to do trauma-informed reporting and without having any idea from the beginning. I feel like there was a moment in, in the first season of Missing and Murdered with Alberta Williams' family. You know, her sister Claudia, when we talked to her, you know, she was so grateful because she has lived with the memories of that night for 27 years when we interviewed her. Yeah, we should say maybe that she and her sister were together the night that Alberta Williams disappeared and her sister was right there right before she... She turned her head for a second and then she turned around and Alberta was gone and that was the last time she had heard from her. So I feel like for her, it felt like that was already something that she was living with all the time and and saying it to us was like actually empowering and that, that it was like... I'm sharing this and this is getting the attention it deserves. It was very, I hope, like a positive experience for her to share that. But one of Alberta's other sisters, you know, didn't want to talk to us at the beginning. And that was fine. You know, it was like totally up to you. But then as the podcast started rolling out, she then said, okay, I will talk to you. And it was a phone conversation, which is not a great, like that, that was one of my first like lessons from that. It was like, we shouldn't have these conversations on the phone because I feel like there's so much in sitting with somebody and seeing them. And I feel like in those interviews, you know, we're talking about difficult things. But what I realized with Alberta's sister was that Alberta's death was only one of the terrible traumas she had experienced. You know, she had lost another sister in a hit and run accident you know, years before Alberta died, um, there was so much, like, this is a life that was interwoven with trauma, and she struggled. And I remember after that interview and after doing Alberta's story, like, feeling like I could see that she was struggling. And I felt so guilty about that. And and especially, and then with Finding Cleo, like, it was a story about these siblings trying to find their sister. All six Semeganist kids had been separated and taken away from their mom and then all kind of adopted into white families and kind of scattered across North America. And they reconnected as adults and have, you know, came to me to try to help find the one sister that was still missing. Mm -hmm. And when we kind of embarked on that journey with them, you know, it was to find their sister. But I realized at a certain point that this was also a journey to find out about themselves and to find out what happened to them and what led to that moment of their mother losing all six of her kids. And inherent in that journey is really a journey into childhood trauma. And one of the most stressful parts of what I do is like feeling this responsibility to families and obviously they're going through so much and I don't I don't want to add to that in any way. Like I feel like what what I've been trying to do is learn about what is trauma informed reporting, what is what can we do? And also just what are the impacts of trauma? You know, I, I actually after finding Cleo, I applied to do the Ockberg Fellowship at the Dart Center for Trauma and Journalism mm -hmm. at Columbia University. And that was an amazing experience of, you know, just having this 
time to learn all about trauma and learn about the science of trauma, but then learn from other journalists who were reporting. And I think that in journalism, so much of that conversation has been focused around people who do, who are foreign correspondents or who travel to war zones or cover crises. But these conversations need to be, you know, happening in newsrooms here, like for Indigenous journalists covering Indigenous communities, like there, there's so much trauma and, and we really need to better understand the impacts of the kind of reporting we're doing. One of the things that I've learned is that, you know, talking about a previous trauma doesn't have to be a traumatizing experience. Like it can actually be a powerful healing experience. It can be empowering. And I think it's, you know, very much part of the relationship that you have with the person that you're interviewing. And what I tried to do and what we tried to do in particular with Cleo's family was really feel like, you know, we're giving them agency over their story, you know, empowering them and that we're helping them to share their story. But that that was, I feel like that was another lesson that I learned after doing it wrong the first time. And it was in the episode in Finding Cleo where we go back to the community where Cleo was from and where her mother was from and where all six kids lived before they were taken. And, you know, within like 10 minutes of arriving on the reserve, you know, we've met the chief and he's taken us to a house in the community where, you know, we're sitting in a teepee. He's arranged for an elder to be there. We're about to take part in a pipe ceremony. You know, he knew we were coming to talk about these painful things from people's past. And he wanted to make sure that we were starting in a good way. So he had arranged for this pipe ceremony. And I remember sitting in the teepee with Marnie and like, smelling the sweet grass and hearing the elder speaking Cree um, about to take part in this ceremony and feeling like so happy because I was like, oh, this is my home too. Like, you know, I'm from Saskatchewan too. This is, Mm -hmm. you know, these are my feel good memories as well. And it's so nice to be here. It's so nice to be sitting on the grass. And, but then I realized that I shouldn't be there, that these were all the things that Christine had been telling us that she was longing for, that she had lost not being raised in her community, with her culture, with her language, close to her family. I was meeting her family. I was taking part in the, And my colleague and one of my mentors, an Indigenous journalist named Duncan McHugh, talks about, you know, being a storyteller versus a story taker. And that for so long, there has been this kind of history of journalists coming in and taking stories from Indigenous communities. Mm. And that kind of extractive, transactional kind of journalism that really causes a lot of harm. And so much of our work is trying to undo and address that. And that there is a way to be a storyteller and help amplify and give people agency in their stories that is not exploitative or extractive. And I realized that it should have been Christine sitting there you know, she should be the one who's kind of, she's the one leading this journey to find her sister. She's the one who reached out to me. She's the one who's calling social services. And so it changed the way that we did the rest of the story. So then in the next leg of the journey, when we go back to New Jersey, we we had to get special permission from CBC to pay for Christine to come down with us. And, and we were following her as she continued to kind of, you know, lead this quest to find her sister. And and that's a really important lesson, but I, I screwed it up first and then I tried to learn from it. And I feel like I'm doing that all the time, especially when it comes to understanding the impacts of trauma. With Jermaine's family, you know, you know, I just met them last year. This is the, um, the, the, in the new show. In the new show, yeah. yeah. But, you know, I've obviously gotten to talk to them a lot. And it's also, you know, Alberta was 
she was murdered in 1989. And we interviewed Claudia, I think it was the podcast came out 27 years later. And with Cleo, she and her family siblings were taken in this 1970s. But Jermaine has only been missing for two years. And so for her family, you know, this is something that they're still figuring out. And there's a lot of grief. And there's so much trauma. And it's just a hard thing, I think, to navigate for them, you know, just being and living, but then also, you know, kind of talking to me and, and yeah. you know, helping to, to share that story. And um, I mean, with 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 Alberta, we, we had no idea what to expect once the podcast came out. We we're just like, you know, we're mm-hmm. hoping this is something and, you know, leads to something. But with Cleo's family, you know, I was trying to prepare them like this could get a lot of attention or this, you know, and I mean, with Jermaine's family, I've been, you know, the the podcast is coming out soon and they have had quite a bit of local media coverage around her disappearance. And I don't know what to expect. This is my first time doing a podcast in the United States focused on on a U.S. case. It's my first time working like for a company that has a a strategy for um, release. (laughs) Getting it out there. (laughs) Well, let's step back for one second, because I am interested in how you decided to come to the U.S. and pursue a story here. So how did you find this case and how did it come about that you you ended up doing it where you're doing it instead of staying at CBC? Yeah, you know, CBC, I have so much love for the CBC. There's so many amazing people who work there. But as a public broadcaster, you know, there are just so many kind of competing things. And I I was a, a news reporter, like a senior reporter in the investigative unit for CBC News. Um, so my job is to report for the news. And I was kind of on the side, I got to do a couple of seasons of a podcast, but that wasn't actually my job. Like I wasn't, Missing and Murder didn't have its own, it wasn't its own show at CBC. It was like a project kind of that became something. And when Cleo came out, like even before Cleo came out, I was told that that was going to be the last podcast that I would get to work on. There wasn't going to be an appetite for another season. Um, and then when it was very successful. So I was like, are we sure? Like, can we not? Come on. And it took a really long time for there to be that support there. And then it was still only kind of like a temporary thing. It was gonna, I was going to be seconded to get to work on another season for six months. And, and I really felt like this is what I want to be doing now. This is, I want to be focused on podcasting, that this is the best way, the best way that I found to tell stories about our communities. Because, you know, I've done the two-minute news stories. I've done the 15-minute documentary stories. I've done, you know, other kinds of reporting. And the context that is so important to understanding the Indigenous experience and being able to weave it in in a way that flows naturally to the story, I just feel like podcasting is such a, a gift for being able to do that. And and this idea that, like, you know, in news, we're fighting for seconds. You're like, you know, your Facebook video can't be longer than one minute and you have to get people within the first three seconds. And you know, most people are only going to read 30 seconds of your online article and who knows who's even watching television anymore. But this idea that you can tell one story over eight episodes and people are going to put headphones in their ears and listen to something that's seven hours long in total, like, it just feels like, you know, a dream for me. And I really wanted to get to do that. And so then I I reached out to Gimlet and I was like, are you interested in (laughs) me coming there and working on podcasts? And and that's how it happened, really. And I feel very aware of the fact that I am not from 
the United States. I'm Cree from Saskatchewan, and that's my experience. And and honestly, like a lot of my reporting has been, even though I've lived away from Saskatchewan for 20 years, has been in Saskatchewan because that is the community that I know and I come from, and I feel like I'm best positioned to tell stories from my own community. And, and I know that there's this incredible diversity that exists within Indigenous communities in Canada and in the United States, and that I am a stranger here and and I have experience reporting on on violence against Indigenous women and girls. And as Indigenous women and girls, you know, we have kind of a shared experience of being impacted by colonization and being impacted by institutional racism and being impacted by broken treaties. And and so, you know, there are a lot of similarities, but I know there are a lot of differences. And so it was really important for me to try to just acknowledge everything that I don't know. And similar to how we did it in Canada, like to connect with the people who were doing that work. And and so one of the first things that we did when I I moved to New York City with my family in, in January of 2020, which is in hindsight a really <laughs> terrible time to move. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough time to arrive. Um, but I went to this conference in Arizona that was put on by indigenous women who were fighting to prevent violence in their communities. And I met people there. And one of the women I met there is in the second episode of our podcast, Lauren Small Rodriguez, who's a Northern Cheyenne woman from Southeastern Montana, but she lives in Missoula. And, and she told me about Jermaine Charlo and suggested that I, I look into Jermaine's case. I think that if you're looking into this issue in the United States, like Montana is definitely going to come up. And and I don't think that it's not an issue in other places. I, I think I've learned that it definitely is. And obviously places where there is a high Indigenous population, like there is an issue of violence against Indigenous women and girls. Like the rates of violence that Indigenous women and girls face in the U.S. is just like astounding. Um, but I think that there are, what Montana has is like some incredibly strong Indigenous women who are advocating for their communities and trying to address this violence. And so we had started doing some reporting in Montana and then the pandemic happened. And that kind of threw a wrench in our plans for a while, like yeah, everyone else. Yeah, I was wondering else. about that. I did want to ask, while you're talking about how you found the case, what are the elements that made you feel like this was a case that you could go deep on? Because tragically, there are so many of them that you could choose from. Absolutely. There are so many. Like, And, and it's so difficult because I know that every single woman or girl deserves to have their story told and deserves attention and deserves their families deserve justice. Like that is such a, like there are so many families who are living without that. And this has been an issue that has been so underreported in media that very few cases get the attention they deserve and they're just starting to. And I think the reality is that any case you could ever look into also tells you a bigger story about the context and mm -hmm. that, you know, we did Alberta Williams uh, for Missing and Murdered season one and kind of focus on the context of residential schools and also the history of policing in Indigenous communities and this complicated history with the RCMP. And when we finished that, we said, I, I told Marnie, like, I would like to focus on child welfare, like to do a story about child welfare if we were going to do another season. And then Cleo's story came to us. Christine reached out to us. And I mean, I think that the reality is that you don't know sometimes until you actually start doing the investigation and doing the work, just how something is going to go. I could never have imagined that Cleo's story was going to end up where it did. And same thing with Jermaine. Like, you know, I think that every story has 
a bigger story to tell. And I think that's the truth about every true crime story, like every any kind of event that's focused on violence could also be focused on a bigger societal issue. I'm I'm not actually interested in the violence as much as I am interested in in those bigger stories and, and helping people realize and recognize that there are real people and families and grief and trauma that is really behind every story that's true crime or labeled that way. But in Jermaine's story, you know, I think that there's so many remarkable things about that I'm learning about Jermaine and about her story and her community. And the biggest thing is like that she has these incredible women in her life, her grandmother, her yaya, um, her auntie Danny, her auntie Valinda, her mother Jen, who are are not going to stop. They're pushing Jermaine's story out there. They don't want her to be forgotten. They're pushing for justice. They're pushing for her to be found, to bring Jermaine home. And they've been going through this incredible like loss and trauma for the last two and a half years. And it's just, it's just, it's devastating. You know, the loss of a young mother who's 23 years old, who disappears and who they are, you know, desperately missing is, is just this, this heartbreaking story. But yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that question, it's obviously like Jermaine's story deserves to be told. People need to understand who Jermaine Charlo is and understand, you know, what her family has been through since she went missing two and a half years ago. But every woman's story deserves to be told. Like, you know, I, I feel just a bit uncomfortable about trying to say, oh, her case is very special. And it is very special, but every case is, is very special and every family deserves to have the chance to talk about their loved one. Well, Kati, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been, it's been really wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a pleasure. And that's it for this week's show. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Connie Walker for coming on back then and to Janelle Pfeiffer, who edited this show. Again, we are off until the end of the year, but I just want to take a moment to say thank you to everyone who listened to and supported the show this year. It'll be 10 years of us doing this podcast as of next year. And even after all that time, we're always overwhelmed with how many people listen to and get something out of the show and how many incredible guests are willing to come on. I also want to thank the sponsors, especially MailChimp, without whom we could not do it. We appreciate you all, and we will be back in the new year with new episodes. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.